0: Now, dear congregation, if you will take your Bibles, take God's Word, and turn to the book of Revelation. It's the last book in the Bible. If you're not sure where to find the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, and chapter 1, and just verses 1 through 3. And I want to consider with you the th- subject, the things that must soon take place. So, we begin Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And we'll end there, and may God bless to us the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our heavenly Father, we have sung this morning that you are sovereign. That you are our God. We have read in your word that you do all things for your own glory, to the praise of your glory, that according to your purpose you accomplish all things. And this, Father, is what we discover in this great book, the book of Revelation, this revelation of Jesus Christ, and we pray this morning that by your Holy Spirit you would help us, each one, to understand and to grasp what we read in the scriptures. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, the exalted Son of God, having accomplished redemption, he is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, that he shall come again in great glory and great power to take us unto himself. What a hope we have. So Father, we commend ourselves to you now and ask that on the preaching of the word of God, you would send Your Spirit in fresh power, that we might understand, that we might know the things that we have believed, and that we might continue to confess them. So these things we pray and ask now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The subject of eschatology, which is the subject of the future things or last things, is, I suppose, how many people see the book of Revelation. Well, it's the book about the end. It's the book about end times. And so they talk about uh, eschatology and they talk about that great doctrine, the doctrine of eschatology, but the book of Revelation is where most people tend to come when they want to understand the book of Revelation. One of the things we discover about the subject of eschatology is that it was fresh on the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, nobody else spoke as much about the subject of hell as did the Lord Jesus Christ. He promised that for those who did not know Him, it would be hell itself, a place of weeping and torment and so on. Jesus was simply expressing eschatology. The idea, the doctrine of future things. Not only the Lord Jesus, but the apostles. All of them think in terms of the future and think in terms of eschatology. In fact, if we are right, and I think we are, we would say that from Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, the entire Bible is about eschatology. Because eschatology goes to an end. Eschatology finishes somewhere. Eschatology has a goal, has a purpose, has a reason. We read in Ephesians chapter 1 about the purpose of God. That whatever God does, He does according to the purpose of His will, and He does it according and for His glory, the glory of His grace, which we find in none other than the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior and as our Lord. So when we come to this book of Revelation, we have spent a few weeks already thinking about it. I've been taking the bird's eye view. I I haven't dived into the nitty-gritty of the book because I think it is relevant and helpful for us to get the big picture. And I'm not convinced myself that for a congregation of God's people, a verse-by-verse exposition of the book of Revelation might be profitable. I don't know that. I haven't got there yet in my own mind. But I am convinced that it would be helpful to every Christian to understand from an overview what this great book, the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, is all about. Everybody has their own idea about Revelation, it seems. Whenever you talk to them, they they have this question or that question. They want to know about this and they want to know about that. And nobody seems really interested in what the book really is all about. And this, I think, is perhaps the great danger that every Christian sooner or later faces when they come to interpreting and understanding the book of Revelation. Because what we tend to do is to take the current events of the day, all that we see around us, and read them into this book of Revelation. And I say that that is a dangerous thing to do. Christians have been doing that on and off all the time. When you listen to people talk about last things, About the future. When you listen to them talk about eschatology, they all, we all, have our own opinions and our own ideas. And the great danger then, uh, apart from the sin of unbelief, in coming to the book of Revelation is to read our schemes, our plans, our whatever we think is right into or to place it onto the interpretation of the book of Revelation. And I say that's a danger because it's a very easy thing to do, and I have found myself many times in the past doing those kinds of things. But we need to guard against that. When you read the great prophets like Daniel or Ezekiel or Isaiah or Jeremiah, you might find yourself asking questions about, why does the prophet talk about the future? What was he thinking when he opened up certain things about the future? Perhaps Daniel and Ezekiel are more than any other book in the Old Testament like that. In fact, the book of Revelation is predicated and built upon the foundation of Daniel and Ezekiel to some lesser extent. We find the prophets from the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. We find, in fact, the Old Testament in the book of Revelation more than any other book in the New Testament. So the Old Testament is significant and very important for us. The one thing we we say about the prophets when we talk about them in the Old Testament, prophets like Daniel or Ezekiel, they use what we call or know as apocalyptic language. And you ask the question, what do you mean by apocalyptic language? Apocalyptic language is the use of symbols, visions, pictures, all these kinds of things, imagery, that are essentially designed to give a heightened form of prophecy. It takes prophecy, if you like, to another level. Prophecy, as you know, is concerned with two things. Number one, it is a foretelling of what is in the future. The prophet spoke because God showed it to them, things that would happen in the future. So Isaiah the prophet, for example, can speak about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in precise detail. He can speak about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ in precise detail because it is shown to him by God. And so he foretells the future concerning our Lord Jesus Christ. But the primary minister of ministry of any prophet was to simply be a preacher, a proclaimer, a forth teller. To declare simply the message that God had given him. We find that with the Apostle John. Jesus comes, gives this revelation to him, and in that revelation he is to forth tell what is given to him. But within that we also discover that he speaks about things that it would appear may be future as well. So, apoc- ap- apocalyptic language is, is simply taking normal prophetic language, prophecy, to a heightened level or to another level. So, Revelation is like that. I mean, nobody can read the book of Revelation and come away from it thinking, wow, I may be confused about a lot of things. Because there's a lot of that imagery, a lot of numbers, a lot of symbols that we find in this last book of the Bible. So, because of that, interpretations abound. Everybody, every Christian, it would appear, and even non-Christians have their own interpretations about this last book, about what it means. And so they, they bring interpretation to the book, They put their scheme of whatever they think is right into the text and read all kinds of things into the book of Revelation. And I want to suggest to you this morning that that is the greatest danger that any Christian faces in reading this last book of the Bible. So I must not come to the book of Revelation with my preconceived ideas. I must not come with any scheme or or form or plan and then impose it upon the book. I must read the book with care. I must read the book as it is revealed to us and pay careful attention to it. One thing I do know about any scheme, schemes we may have, ideas we may have about the book of Revelation, is that they all have their strengths and their weaknesses. And nowhere do you find that more expressed in the book of Revelation where you see a crossover, a blending of the strengths and of the weaknesses of many, many individual positions. And so as a result of that, we are left with a multitude of opinions by Christians all around the world. Questions lead to more questions. And in the end, nobody appears to be the wiser regarding the book of of revelation. So, I want to suggest to you very strongly that when you read Revelation, read it with care, read it with godly fear, read it with reverent submission to the Spirit of God who gave this word to us as an authoritative, inspired word from God Himself. You will notice if you look at verse 1, what does verse 1 say? It says that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Christ. It is not a revelation about Jesus. It is a revelation from Jesus. Now we could say, and I think it would be right to say, the content of the entire Bible is Jesus Christ. There's no question about that. From Genesis to Revelation, the whole Bible is centered around the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. But this is a revelation of, from Jesus Christ to his seven churches that we read about in chapter 2 and in chapter 3. It's a revelation that God gave to him and Jesus in turn gives it through the angel to the apostle John who is required to write everything that he sees, everything that is shown him in visions and so on. This word revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, is the Greek word apokalypsis, which means an unveiling, means a revealing, a making known, a declaration, so that what is being shown here in the book of Revelation is an unveiling of of and by our Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll notice in verse 1 that this revelation is given by God, which God gave to Him. And why did God give it to Him? Look at the text. To show to His servants the things that must soon take place. So if you want to know why the book of Revelation exists, it's quite clear in verse 1 that it exists to show The things that must soon take place. You see that word show? It is to show to his servants. That's the Greek word deikmumi. It means to draw attention to something. It means to point out something. To cause you to see something. To signify something. So God gives this revelation of Jesus Christ to show, to point out to the servants of Christ the things that must soon take place. You know, the Jews in the first century, they continually asked Jesus, like they did, for example, in John chapter 2 and verse 18, what sign do you show us? What sign do you show us, seeing that you do all these things, all the miracles that He did? What sign do you give? The miracles in and of themselves were, of course, signs. That we are meant to see the almighty sovereign power of the Son of God at work in our Lord Jesus Christ. And the Jews wanted to know, well, what sign, Jesus, are you going to show us? What is a sign? I mean, if you're driving along the road and there's a sign post and you, you want directions, that's what a sign does. It provides you with direction. It leads you in a certain way. It gives you specific information. I suppose if you're downtown Chicago or downtown New York, you'd be very grateful for the signposts on the road to guide you to which lane you should be in. That's all a signpost does. It is there to provide direction. And it is there to help. And this is what I think we find here in the book of Revelation. It is a sign to us of what God intends for us to know. So the word show simply means to point out something, to direct us to something, and to put us in the way of the signpost. And that's what we have in this book. So we are, I suppose like John, in the same position. We are being shown things. We are being pointed out in a certain direction. So the question we ask ourselves is, what am I being pointed to? What is being pointed out to me? What is being shown to me? Look at verse 1. The things that must soon take place. And these things, at the end of verse 1, are made known to the Apostle John. To this youngest of the Apostles, of the disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. What did he do with it? He is given it by Jesus, this revelation What did he do with it? Look at verse 2. He bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And I think I mentioned previously, the word saw is a prophetic word which every prophet is used of every prophet in the Old Testament. Isaiah saw, Jeremiah saw, Amos saw that word simply points out that they were given a vision and they saw things in the vision and those are being testified to and John says that he is the one who bore witness to the word of God and to the very testimony of Jesus. So what John saw God gave him and what he saw came to him in a vision just like an Old Testament prophet. So God has shown it to him Or to put it in the language of revelation, God has revealed it to him. God has unveiled to him the things that must soon take place. God has revealed it. God has made it known. So what's John going to do with it? Well, he's going to write about it. He's going to write what he saw. And he's going to write it down. So everything he writes, you'll notice if you look at verse 4, the Bible says that it is John addressing the seven churches that are in Asia, in Asia Minor. And those churches, of course, are are as we find them in chapter 2, and so on. Write what you see, John. Look at verse 11. Write what you see in a book. Send it to the seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, And to Laodicea. Write what you see in a book. And what you have in your hand this morning, the book of Revelation, is that book. And that is the book that was sent to those seven churches in the first century. So, what is John writing about then in the book? What is he putting into the book that Jesus says send it to the seven churches? What is it? Well, May I suggest to you quite simply again from verse 1, it is the things that must soon take place. If you look at verse 19 of chapter 1, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. Now, I put it like that, I reiterate it like that, I repeat it like that, the things that must soon take place, because that seems to me what the text says. Why did God give this revelation of Jesus Christ, of His Son, to this Apostle John? To show to His servants, right, the things that must soon take place. And you will notice in verse 3 that... The Lord Jesus Christ says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Not only who reads them, but who hears them, listens to them, and who keeps them, or who does them. So here we learn an important principle when you come to reading any part of the Bible, any part of God's word. It is not enough to just read it. You must listen to it. You must hear what it says. And it's not enough to just read and listen, but you must do. You must keep what it says. So a failure to do any of those, of course, is negligence and may result in the loss of eternal life as the ultimate thing. We are to read, we are to listen. And we are to do, we are to keep what is written in the book. And you will notice that as far as John is concerned, there's an urgency, isn't there? Because look at the end of verse 3, for the time is near. There's an urgency about this revelation because the time is near. So back in verse 1, the things that must soon take place, these are the things that are connected to the time is near. You notice in verse 1 when it says the things that soon must take place. You have that little word soon. A lot of people just skip over the little word soon and put everything later. Way down in the future. But John says soon. And if I were to ask you what does soon mean? You would say it's something that's nearby. It's near to me. In fact, some translations I think use the word shortly. Soon to take place. It's the Greek word taxos we get a taxometer from it. Something that, an instrument that measures speed or velocity. Taxos means with speed, with haste. So, to show to his servant the things that without, with speed are about to take place, or to put it another way, without delay, to take place at once. In other words, the idea of the word, the force behind the word is imminence. That the things that must soon take place are actually near. That they're not far off. But in the mind of the Apostle John as he writes, these are the things that have been shown to him, the things that must soon take place. It means the nearness of the fulfilling of the events that are to take place, as he writes. Now You know, the book of Revelation is not written to confuse us. Many people are confused by this last book, but the book of Revelation, like any book in the Bible, is not written at all to confuse us or to be confusing. It is written to clarify for us certain things, in this case, the things that must soon take place. We believe, don't we, in the clarity of Scripture, the perspicuity of Scripture, that the Bible is clear that we use the principle of Scripture interpreting Scripture where something is difficult in the Bible some other place in the Bible will explain it and so on so we compare Scripture with Scripture when you read the book of Revelation perhaps more than any other book you are required to use other books to compare what Scripture agrees with and says it may use cryptic language and pictures and symbols But it's not a cryptogram. You ever see those cryptograms in the newspapers that you get? They're very confusing things. I get very troubled by them because I've got no idea what they're on about. A cryptogram is designed to mislead you. But the book of Revelation is not designed to mislead you. It is designed to show you clearly the things that are being revealed in this book. So, people are frustrated, I know, by the book of Revelation. People are frustrated by the plethora of interpretations that abound. The questions that abound. But that's not what the book's designed to do. The book of Revelation is designed simply to show you one simple thing. The things that must soon take place. Because, verse 3, the time is near. The time is near. And so the use of... Graphic symbols, imagery, numbers, all of these things that you find in the book of Revelation, they are designed to convince you, not to confuse you, but to convince you that this book and what it says in this book is absolutely true and real. What things? The things that he says must soon take place. Things that are impending, things that are imminent, things that that are near to us, the things that must soon take place. If you were to ask John, can I escape these things? You would say, no. They're near. They're soon to take place. There's no escaping them. There's no avoiding them. And notice in verse 3 that he talks about the words of this prophecy. So notice that, that we have revealed to us that what has been made known to the Apostle John is being recorded by John in this book that is called the words of this prophecy. And surely the words of the prophecy in verse 3 are connected to verse 2, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus himself. So that what we have here is a revelation scripture given to us, the unfolding of the unveiling of the Word of God about things that must soon take place. Now, because it says soon take place, we can say it's as far as the audience is concerned, the seven churches, future. But it's near future for them, the things that must soon take place. Not only is this revelation uh, urgent, but there's an authority, authority to it, because you notice it says, the things that must, must take place. So that the revelation that is given to John is an authoritative revelation. It must be read, it must be heard, it must be kept, it must be obeyed. So there's an authority behind the revelation of Jesus Christ. Isn't that the distinction between a false prophet in the Old Testament that you come across and in the New Testament compared to a true prophet of God? What is the distinction? The distinction is that the false prophet says a lot of things that might sound good and right but they're false and never come to pass because they're not God's word. What does the prophet say? He speaks not in his own name but he says The Lord says, Yahweh says, God says. It's not the prophet's voice, but it's the voice of God. And isn't our Lord Jesus Christ recognized in the same way? No man ever spoke like that man, our Lord Jesus Christ, because he spoke with authority. Not like the scribes, not like the Pharisees. When Jesus spoke, he spoke with authority. So this is a revelation then that you and I must read, must listen to, and certainly must do what it says. Now, if that's true, then the Lord intends for all of us this morning to read this word, and to hear this word, and to keep this word. And it's helpful, I think, to see how revelation reveals these things that are taking place so when when john says the things that must soon take place he means what is going to unfold in the book of revelation so let me give you an example of some of the things that he's going to unfold so will you turn with me to chapter 13 chapter 13 of revelation and verse 16 chapter 13 and verse 16 This is talking about the second beast. Some people call him the false prophet. The second beast, verse 16. And also it, the second beast, causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand and on the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is... The name of the beast, or the number of its name, this calls for wisdom, verse 18. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Wow, if ever there have been three verses in the Bible that have caused such chaos in the minds of Christians, it's those verses right there in chapter 13. What does John say is the most essential thing in understanding those verses? Isn't it verse 18? You need wisdom to understand. That's the essential thing, right? It's it's not whatever somebody's telling me might be the mark of the beast. But I need wisdom, the wisdom that comes from God, to understand what John said. In order to understand the beast, in order to understand even the mark of the beast, I need wisdom. I need something God's help to understand. And notice how clear John really is when you think about it because in verse 18 he says that the number of the beast is the number of man and that number is 666. And there are those verses that cause consternation, panic among Christians. Have I received the mark of the beast? I've even heard Christians say that to me. Have you received the mark of the beast? What is this mark of the beast? But chapter 13, in the context of chapter 13, introduces us to the beast. Verse 1, and I saw appearing out of the sea this great beast coming out of the sea. And it's really chapter 13 about the worship of the beast or being a follower of the beast. What is that? It's simply about idolatrous worship of a system or a beast-like creature, man, that is represented by the beast. And the one thing you can say about the beast, he is anti-God and he is anti-Christ. And of course, that whole title, the Antichrist, has leapt its way into Revelation chapter 13, when the title Antichrist is not even mentioned in Revelation chapter 13. In fact, the use of Antichrist has very particular use in the New Testament by the Apostle John in his epistles and only in his epistles that it is someone who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh and denies that he is the Son of God. It's simply an expression of apostasy to be Antichrist. And it's never the Antichrist, it's just Antichrist. Many Antichrists, John says, have already come. So this beast, it's clear in the book of Revelation, is anti-God, is anti-Christ. But let me suggest to you that the mark of the beast which causes trouble for every Christian is not some visible stamp or tattoo or credit card or chip that is inserted into you to identify you, to find where you are. It is simply language that expresses identity. It is a mark of identity in the spiritual sense. Now you say, Russ, how do you know that? Well, when you look at chapter 14 and verse 1. So, very next verse, chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked, John says... And behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb and with Him 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. And the 144,000, of course, is just this perfect picture of God's redeemed people, of the saints of God, of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. They are, in verse 4 of chapter 14, followers of the Lamb. We're in chapter 13... To receive the mark of the beast is to follow the beast. But here are the followers of the Lamb who are said to be redeemed. Now how are they redeemed? By the blood of the Lamb, by Calvary, by the cross. And notice they have Christ's name written on their foreheads and his Father's name written on their foreheads. I doubt there's one Christian seriously that believes that's some sort of stamp that has Jesus' name written right there on my forehead and the Father's name. I don't believe that that's what John intends for us. He is simply referring to an invisible ceiling that identifies people as the followers of either the beast or the lamb. Jesus, you remember, was able to point out how you know people, whether they are Christians or not, by their fruit. You shall know them. By their fruit you shall know them. By what you observe, what you hear from their lips. Is that person speaking like a Christian? Does that person behave like a Christian? Does that person love the people of God? Does that person come regularly and gather with the saints and belong to the saints? Is that being indicated by their life? Or are they standoffish and want nothing to do with Christ? And nothing to do with God's people? By their fruits. You shall know who they are, Jesus said. And so here, this marking, whatever it is, this invisible sealing, is just simply pointing out who belongs to whom. Either a follower of the beast or a follower of the lamb. In fact, the Bible speaks, we read it in Ephesians chapter 1, that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. In fact, the New Testament talks about that in chapter 4 of Ephesians. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed until the day of redemption. What is the sealing of the Spirit? It's the Spirit indwelling. It's the Spirit within. 2 Corinthians 122, who has put his seal on us and given us his Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And so this is a spiritual work. A spiritual mark of identification. You are either a follower of the beast in Revelation. Or you are a follower of the Lamb. So be very careful that you don't read whatever is said out in the world today into this book of Revelation. Be careful that you don't read all kinds of things. In other words, we need exactly what John says we need. I need wisdom. Let the reader understand. It is the, the mark of the beast, is the number of a man. And his number is six six six. Perhaps six, six six six, by the way, is the trinity that is anti-God. Because the Trinity, the glorious Trinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would be, if you like, in numbers to be seven, 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 because the spirits are seven the spirit of God is sevenfold from chapter one. Perhaps this is John's way of showing there is a trinity Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But there's also this evil trinity the dragon, Satan himself, the beast, and the second beast that are anti God and anti Jesus Christ. It's very interesting when you study the judgments of the book of Revelation. You know there are the seal judgments, there are the bowl judgments, there are the trumpet judgments. But what is significant about all of those is when you read the sixth judgment of the seals, the sixth judgment of the trumpets, the sixth judgment of the bowls, every single one of those passages, Revelation 6, Revelation 9, Revelation 16, depict the judgment of God as coming upon the followers of the beasts of the world and its system. So what John saw in the visions that God gave to him, those things, John says, or Jesus says to him, write down. Record them. Record what you see, John. Put it down. And that's what he did. Why? So that those seven churches of Asia Minor would understand and would be able to have wisdom, so that they would be able to stand firm in a world that assaults their spiritual lives in the face of persecution, in the face of suffering, in the face of hardship. This book of Revelation, the things that are taking place, John says to the seven churches, are to encourage them to look to the Lamb. Because triumph is in the Lamb. Tragedy is if you follow the beast and the dragon. So the book of Revelation is written to God's people of all ages. There's no question about that. To encourage God's people never to compromise with the world, never to become like the world. Doesn't John tell us in 1 John 2 and verse 15, do not love the world? or the things that are in the world, because the things that are in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of possessions, is not from God, is not of the Father. The love of the Father is not in those who love the world, because you cannot love God and the world at the same time. You either serve one or serve the other. So here are God's people in the first century, In these seven churches. And they are struggling with a system. With a world that is anti-God. That is against them. And they are being encouraged to compromise. You can worship Caesar. You can give in to Caesar. You can give some, some recognition to Caesar. But yes you can have your king. If you like Jesus. But you also have this king. Caesar. Compromise. And the apostle John says no. Jesus says no. You're either a follower of me the lamb or you're a follower of this dragon and the beast now dear brothers and sisters i know because i know myself that we all face temptation in the world that we all are tempted to compromise today but did you know that john again the apostle john in first john chapter 4 and verse 1 says test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world, so don't believe every spirit. Pay attention to what you see, pay attention to what you hear. How do you test the spirits with the word of God? <clears throat> so, the things that must soon take place, or what we find explained given to us in this book of revelation by the way in the very last chapter verse 6 and verse 10 you read exactly the same phrases the things that must soon take place because the time is near so he begins the book like that and he ends the book like that what do you how do you what do you take away from that that whatever is in within the book is meant For these seven churches, the things that must soon take place. Now, I said earlier, it's very important to grasp and understand that the book of Revelation is saturated by the Old Testament. In fact, the things that must soon take place are because of the Old Testament scriptures. And this is one of the difficult things I think people have is that they kind of don't want to see the Old Testament Scriptures as they are revealed or unfolded clearly in the book of Revelation. And so John, of course, time and time again, will reveal connection to the Old Testament, direct quotations, allusions to the Old Testament, even just sometimes words that are Old Testament words, the Apostle John uses. Never forget that he's a Hebrew, that he's a Jew, that his language is Hebrew that he reads the Old Testament in Hebrew, and that now he is writing in Greek. This man, his comprehension of the Old Testament is deep and is valid. So I want to show you some of those connections as we have some time here. Turn to Daniel chapter 2. So, the Old Testament prophet Daniel, chapter 2. Now you remember, this is the great dream that Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon had about the image that he saw the head of gold and chest of silver and thighs of bronze and feet uh, or legs of, of iron and then the toes partly of iron and clay and he had no idea what that dream was about so he asked his wise men tell me the dream and they said well if you tell us the dream we'll tell you the interpretation and Nebuchadnezzar said Nebuchadnezzar no no You tell me the dream, because I know what the dream was. But I want to know what it means, right? So in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, he had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. And so he calls the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans... To come and tell him his dreams. He says, I have a dream. My spirit is troubled to know my dream. What he really wants is to know the interpretation of the dream. Can you show it to me? He's confused. Now, if you look at verse 24 of Daniel 2, because nobody can show the dream right, therefore nobody has made known the interpretation, so he demands that they all be killed. And Daniel, of course, and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, they pray. And look what it says in verse 24. Then Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and he said to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. So Arioch, of course, goes back to Nebuchadnezzar and says, oh, wait a minute, Uh, my king, we have a man here who says he can tell you the dream. And therefore, of course... The interpretation of the dream. So the king, verse 26, declares to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel says, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, astrologers, can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. What days? Latter days. Future days. Right? Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. And to you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, This mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living but in order that the interpretation may be made known to you the king that you may know the thoughts of your mind. And then from verse 31 through 35, the dream, right? So you saw an image, verse 31 You're the head of this image of gold and that must have really appealed to Nebuchadnezzar, right? I'm I'm the gold part but after me, there's this, the waste is silver, and all he goes all the way down through that. Notice how uh, Daniel puts it in verse, uh, at the end of verse 35. But the stone that struck the mountain became a great mountain, sorry, became, that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth because back in verse 34 as you look Nebuchadnezzar a stone cut without human hands struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces now will you notice when it struck the image and where it struck the image on the feet not on the head not on the waist not on the thighs not on the legs but on the feet right of iron and clay and then in verse 36 now I'll tell you the the interpretation And he says to you, O king, this is verse 36, king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth and there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things and like iron that crushes it shall break and crush all these things. And you saw the feet and toes, partly of clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the clay. And then he goes on to say, uh, verse 43, You looked at the iron mixed with soft clay, they were mixed with one another in marriage, but they were not whole together, because iron does not mix with clay. Verse 44, And in the days of those kings, the Kings of iron and clay, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold." A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and the interpretation is sure. So what's that all about? Right, well, it's about kingdoms, right? After Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. The, the head of gold is Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon. And then, of course, you get the silver, the Medes and the Persians. You get the bronze, the Greeks. And finally, you get this fourth beast of iron and then mixed with clay, that is the Roman kingdom. And that fourth kingdom in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 7 is said to be terrifying and exceedingly strong. And the Daniel 7 beast has ten horns and another horn, which Revelation 12, Revelation 13, Revelation 17 all point to the fourth beast, the ten horns, the other horn. But why why all that? Because the point of those visions, that dream that Nebuchadnezzar has was to show us in Revelation the triumph of Christ, the triumph of his kingdom which is represented by the stone that is cut out of the mountain. So you see, just like the seven churches who belong to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, so too does every Christian belong to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not to the kingdom of this world, not to the kingdom of the dragon and the kingdom of the beast, but to the kingdom of Christ. Just like Revelation 11 Verse 15 says, The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So this is what John, in the book of Revelation, is going to unfold. These things that are spoken of in the Old Testament that all end in victory for the Lamb. Now listen, dear congregation. Does that mean anything to you? It ought to mean everything to you. If you're a Christian, it means you are a follower of the Lamb. He can never be defeated. In fact, He has overcome all the kingdoms of this world. In fact, He is, as Revelation tells us, the ruler of the nations. And He breaks them in pieces. His kingdom. Well, when did His kingdom come? His kingdom came when He came. Yes, there are pictures and, and there's a kingdom in the Old Testament, the kingdom of God. But it comes to fruition when the King comes. And where is our Lord Jesus Christ now? This morning, at that time, quarter to twelve. Where is He? He's in heaven, at the right hand of God. What is He doing at His Father's right hand? He is ruling and reigning. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. You are a follower of the Lamb if you are. You are victorious in Jesus Christ. Because he has overcome. And let me tell you another thing. The kingdoms of this world, it doesn't matter whether they're the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians, or the Greeks or the Romans. It doesn't matter what kingdom. They cannot overthrow the kingdom of the Lamb. Because his kingdom is the stone that was cut out from the mountain that destroys all the kingdoms of this world. Yes, The dragon is out there, and he is using whatever is in the world to cause turmoil for the church of Jesus Christ. But we are the followers of the Lamb, the bride of the Lamb. We are victorious because Christ is victorious. How can we live defeated lives in this world? How can we live lives that are are perhaps compromised? That's what John wants to say, what Jesus wants to say to his seven churches. Don't compromise your faith. Even though you are tempted to compromise, I have won, fear not, I was, I am the living one, I was dead, I am alive, forevermore. What do you have to fear? Nothing. Because we are in the king, and we follow the king. And so whatever this world may throw at you, dear brother and sister, and at me, whatever it may tempt you with, Christ has already won the victory at the cross at his ascension and at his exaltation and the final vindication and proof of it is when he comes again in great glory and power to take us to himself and then we shall be like him so when John writes he's writing to encourage the seven churches that's what Jesus is doing right Jesus says look I know everything about you Ephesus Smyrna Pergamum Thyatira Philadelphia, Sardis, Laodicea. I know everything about you. I know your works. I know what you do. I have things against you. Some of you have not been faithful. Some of you have left your first love. Some of you have compromised with the world. Stop! Stop! Otherwise, I shall come quickly and I'll take the candlestick away that represents you and you'll be nothing. You'll be blown to the wind. Stop! isn't that what Jesus would say to all of us this morning if you're compromising with the world or if I'm compromising with the world stop stop submit to the lamb yield to the lamb give him your loyalty and it doesn't matter what century we live in by the way 1st century, 4th century, 6th century, 12th century, 16th century, 20th century, 21st century doesn't matter, same word comes to all of us, same lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. You see, Revelation is a prophetic book about imminent fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies about Jesus and his kingdom. That's what it's about. That's what Revelation is about. So, don't be afraid of Rome, you Ephesians, you Philadelphians. Don't be afraid, you Laodiceans, because I have overcome those kingdoms with my kingdom. And instead, dear beloved, this morning (coughs) of being fixated on the world and the events of the world that you read in your newspapers or on your internet, which change constantly, right? Which you try to keep up with. Instead of being fixated on those events, we should be fixated on the Lamb and on His kingdom on Christ and his kingdom because Jesus said when he was here on earth the kingdom is in your midst the kingdom is at hand the kingdom is within you the kingdom has come because I have come it's Jesus who said that unless one is born again he cannot see the kingdom of God are you born again because if you're not you're not in the kingdom you're not a follower of the lamb you could be said to be a follower of the beast and the dragon Paul said it is through many tribulations that we must enter into the kingdom of God. Has he not delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son? Colossians 1.30. That's what Jesus has done. This is what John means then when he even says of himself in verse 9, I, John, will brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom. The kingdom. I'm, I'm a fellow partner with the seven churches, with all believers in the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And praise God that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of Christ. Praise God that's true. And that he shall reign forever and forever and forever. So let's not be confused by what's happening in the world. Let's not be troubled by the events that change constantly. Nations against nations and all of these things. Let us not be troubled by those things but let us be confident in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us trust Him. Let us lean upon Him because this world, let me tell you, as you know, is passing away. But the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ is forever and forever and forever. These are the things that are in the mind of Jesus Christ giving them to the Apostle John to show the seven churches the things that are soon to take place that they might be encouraged in a world that worships the emperor to not worship the emperor but to worship the king the Christ be confident in Christ because he has won the victory let's pray together our Father thank you that you are God And that you alone are God we thank you for the lamb that we are followers of the lamb because he shed his blood for us and has redeemed us has saved us by grace thank you for your mercy upon us we who were sinners we who were lost we who were guilty we who were condemned Christ came and delivered us and saved us by grace thank you for this great salvation father And thank you that all of these elements that we've talked about this morning are just part of this great salvation that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that all the kingdoms of this world cannot stand against the kingdom of Christ. And yet, Father, forgive us because sometimes we live as though the world rules. Forgive us that we are such weak followers of your Son. Forgive us that we are not as strong as we ought to be when the book of Revelation conveys the victory of Christ, the triumph of the Lamb. Be merciful to us and help us as a church in a country that is filled with unbelief and ungodliness, where the world reigns supreme in the flesh. Oh, help us to be a holy people and a separated people for God. Thank you for your word, and we ask that you would help us to understand these things as we look with a bird's eye view of this book of Revelation, to see from an overview what we find in this book to help us, to encourage us. So strengthen our faith, Father. Forgive us if we have compromised. Let us not be confused, but give us your wisdom, the wisdom of the Spirit of God, that we might have a mind to understand your word that you have written for us to be understood. So thank you for these things. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who loved us and laid down his life for us. And thank you for the great salvation that we have in him. We thank you for our King, that he shall soon come again, great power and glory, to take us to himself. And then we shall always and forever be with the Lord and be like the Lord. Transform us, we pray, by your grace and by your Holy Spirit through your word. We ask all of these things with thanksgiving.